The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. So we are continuing our study in Mark, and we said this month is kind of a month of controversy. The, the letter of Mark's account of what Jesus did, his biographical account, as it was told by Peter most likely, can be summarized, the servant on the mission. The mission is to show his love and bring salvation to the world. But there's controversy. And today's sermon title is, Jesus Challenges Man-Made Traditions. And as I came up with that title, I couldn't help but think of the old movie, Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, some of you remember uh, that movie. And Teva, who, who's, who, who, Tevya, his name means the goodness of the Lord. That's what his name means. He's the father, right, in the story. And he sings this song about tradition. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anakava, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? And I tell you, I don't know. But it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. A lot of truth in that song. And especially the phrase, we don't know why we do it. We all have traditions. And then some traditions and rituals and disciplines are very good for us. In Psalm 23, David said, lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And the word path is actually uh, what is caused in the soft clay when a, a wheel goes through and there's a rut. So a righteous rut. These can be good things in our lives. We need good routines. That, that's not what we're necessarily talking about. But let's be honest, every church has its traditions. Every church, every gathering of God's people has a liturgy. And you say, oh, well, we're not a liturgical church like that one down the street. But we have our liturgy. Ed and I pray about this, talk about this. We don't want this to be a three-ring circus every Sunday. But we do want to introduce fresh things that are going to help keep us alive. But we have liturgy. We have the way we, we do it. We have programs. We have schedules. We, we have patterns. This is the way we do church. And that's true of every church. Um, for instance, every church has a dress code. Have you noticed? They do. You know, and in some churches, if you go in in a suit and tie and your wife has a dress on, because they're so casual, they're going to look down at you like, what? What's wrong with you? But then on the other hand, if you go to a church where they wear suit and tie and dresses and you show up in a more casual outfit, they're going to say, whoa. It happens both ways. All that God said was, dress modestly. Really? I think about schedules, and um, for 27 years of my ministry, I served two churches where the schedule was Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. That's what we did. And I believe it produced disciples. I believe that it was blessed of God. I have many memories of wonderful evening services as, as an example. And, um, but then I started asking myself the question, is this making disciples? Is this the best way to make disciples? 
And, and I discovered in studying the scriptures that Jesus taught in small groups as well as in large groups. And most of these, the schedule was me preaching. And, and honestly, preaching can sometimes be the easiest to take in and, dis, and ignore. So, you know, small groups is a place where we get to interact and we pray. And I, I just so enjoyed my small group meeting just this past week. So when I tried to introduce small groups into this ambitious schedule of Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, didn't work too well. We still have a Wednesday night service here. We still pray on Wednesday night. It's an open service. You can come. You can join us to pray on Wednesday night at 630. Right now it meets in my office because it's so small. <laughs> But again, that doesn't measure the prayer ministry of this church. We have people praying in life groups, small groups, men's small groups, ladies' small groups. We prayed this morning before the service with some men. You know, this is a beautiful part of ministry. So we've got to be careful because we can let it become a tradition and look down our nose at others who don't do it the way we do it. How, how about translations of the Bible? Oh, my. That, that's one that will really get you going, huh? There are some churches where if you don't use a certain translation, you're in trouble. I preach from the New International Version because I feel it's readable, but when Jeff and David preach, they use this thing called the English Standard Version. There's no competition here. There's no reason to have angst over that. You see, but traditions can become a problem. We, we had a family that visited here a short time ago, and because we don't serve communion every week, they chose to go to another place. Now, again, Let's just be aware of it. You know, as I was studying this and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, okay, Lord, I got my traditions. <laughs> I got my ways of doing things, and I think they're right. But I need to let there be freedom and uh, not let this become too legalistic and rigorous to look down my nose at other people. So Jesus used a couple parables we looked at last week briefly and just quickly no one sews a patch of unstrung cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, here's the problem. I like old wine. Well, I don't really drink wine, but, but we like the old wine. We like the way we do stuff. And Jesus comes with this gospel, and it is shaking their world. And they don't really like it. And he's saying, listen, we're going to develop new wineskins for the new wine. There are going to be some new things. And may God keep our worship alive. As one commentator said so well, is Jesus upsetting the community by neglecting what they define as orthodox? And I think that's exactly what's happening in the Gospel of Mark as, as we've been reading along. There have been five controversial stories. We're looking at the last one in the list. Five, verse, five different stories where there was controversy over the work of Jesus. In fact, I wanted to tell you this, this kind of interesting it says in the, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. The language uses the word schisma in Greek, which means schism. We use the word schism. We talk about people who neglected and ran away from orthodox doctrine, and we say they, that was a schism. And that's the same language Jesus used here. He's being accused of a schism, isn't he? He really is. It's kind of interesting stuff. Well, today, we're looking at the Sabbath. Hmm. The fifth 
command. And this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where Mark really addresses this issue of Jesus' view of Sabbath. So I'm reading from Mark chapter 2, and I'm reading at uh, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his dis- and And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abithathar, The high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wow, what a text. To introduce this, I'm going to take a few moments in the introduction to talk about Sabbath and a little bit about what it's about. We can't cover everything, but here it is in the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The, the basis of Sabbath is the creation story. Okay, that's, that's the pattern that, that God uh, said. And, and the Sabbath was given as a blessing to the nation. It's the only nation that had a Sabbath understanding. And, and this was to set them apart. You might remember in the latter chapters of Nehemiah, after the wall had been rebuilt, Nehemiah comes back to the city of Jerusalem and he finds them doing business on Sabbath. And he is really upset about it. This was a day set apart for the glory of God. Now, it was intended to be a gift. Look at this. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. 
Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So here in Deuteronomy, he refers to the fact that they were slaves and had to work seven days a week and God gave them a day of rest. It was a gift. They're to delight in it, according to Isaiah. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It was intended to be a delight. It was intended to be a gift from God. It was a gift from God. And the routine of Sabbath, even today, is beneficial for us. I wish more people would follow it. You know, we work seven days a week and wear ourselves out and are miserable. Taking a Sabbath day for rest is, is a good idea, but it should not become legalistic. In the Old Testament, Moses really didn't reveal a whole lot of specifics about what this work was. But the rabbis, in their zeal, came up with a whole list of ways to define what is work on a Sabbath. In fact, in their literature, in the Talmud and the Mishnah, um, the, the Jewish law outlined 39 definitions of work. And you don't just have the definition, you've got all kinds of sub-definition statements. They're all prohibitions. They're all do not, do not, do not, do not, right? For instance, you cannot plant or harvest on a Sabbath day. You cannot hunt you cannot butcher an animal, you cannot sew cloth, you cannot write any more than one page on a Sabbath day, you cannot loosen a knot, you cannot set a dislocated or broken bone. If you break your bone on Sabbath, you gotta wait till the next day. You cannot repair your roof. Drip, drip, drip. And if you break these rules, you could be executed. I mean, it's a very strong statement about Sabbath. So with that background, let's dive into the text. Jesus and his disciples are accused of two crimes against the Sabbath traditions followed by the Pharisees. Harvesting on the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. So we look at the infraction in chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. By the way, walking and traveling on the Sabbath is illegal too. But they don't say anything about that. They, they don't make any mention of that. There was limits. Or well, one uh, prof said you could only walk as far as your slave could throw a stone. So you make sure you got a slave with a strong arm if you want to walk an extra distance. But they began to pick some heads of green. That's the infraction. They were breaking the rules. It's the summer season, and, and the fingers are there, and they pick them, and then they rub it together, and then they're eating the green. It's basically a snack. 
the Pharisees. If you remember, I said last week, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said there were only 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at the time. They confront Jesus himself. This time they're not cowards. They don't talk to somebody else. They talk to Jesus, and, and, they, and they are very indignant. Look. You know what it means? Look. Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? You're the leader. They're following you. You should stop this right now. That's really the intent of their question, isn't it, huh? The issue of plucking actually is addressed in the law. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So it was permitted. And in fact, Ruth, that's what Ruth was doing in Boaz's field. And Boaz noticed her and said, she's a good looking woman, so you know, leave some extra grain for her to pluck. But what they were doing is just getting a snack. They're just plucking, rubbing their fingers together, and eating the grain. The Pharisees expected Jesus to tell them to stop. Jesus gives an illustration. Have you never read? Don't you love that? That's what rabbis did all the time. Like, of course they read. They know, they know Samuel. They know the letter. They know the story about David and his companions. And evidently, uh, when David was hungry at Nob and his troops were hungry, he went to the priest, and the priest and his son, most likely, gave them the showbread to eat. Now, now, this is illegal. I mean, it really is, according to the law. Let me read for you, just so we know, what the law said about the showbread. Take the finest flour, this is Leviticus 24, and bake 12 loaves of bread, using two-tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. This is right before the Holy of Holies where God dwells. By each stack put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath by Sabbath. So it looks like it's a weekly event and be on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offering presented to the Lord. So as one commentator says it very, very well, both stories, a pious man did something forbidden. In, in some ways, the story with David isn't necessarily on a Sabbath. That's what they're upset about. Jesus points to the story um, because David was expressing authority and Jesus is expressing authority. Barclay says human need took precedent over divine law. He goes on to say the best way to use sacred things is to use them to serve one another. Now the explanation that follows is kind of interesting because this is really maybe the heart of the passage. I mean, when you see it, man, this really jumps off the page at me. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now what do you think he means by that? The Sabbath was meant to be a gift to human beings. But you've made it into this rigorous, rigorous, 
calculated ri ritual. And you've defined work in 39 different ways and added to the list even more than that. And these poor people, rather than resting, are worried about whether they've broken the rules or not. And that really wasn't the intent. It was intended to be a restful day. It was intended to be a gift. You know, we're so pro to this kind of stuff. Have you noticed the labels they put on stuff? Some of them are rather ridiculous. But because of potential dangers, products have labels. Let me give you a few examples. Ammoniated window cleaner says, do not spray in your eyes. <laughs> Electric woodworking drill says, not intended to be used as a dental drill. <laughs> I needed to know that. Hair coloring on the box says, do not use as an ice cream topping. <laughs> Sleeping pills Warn us, this may cause drowsiness. <laughs> air conditioner boxes say, avoid dropping the air conditioner out of your windows. Well, sometimes the labels can be comical, but at some point somebody sat down and said, this is the way it should be done, and, and you know, there's this attempt, but, but it so easily becomes something so distracting from worship, so distracting from drawing near to the Lord, and that's really the case. And so then Jesus says this, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's it, man. Brothers, sisters, friends, he's the Lord. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And just like David exercised authority as the anointed pre, uh, king to come, he was running from Saul when that story happened. And the priests gave him the showbread and they ate it. So Jesus rules the Sabbath. They don't like this. The Son of Man is a title. It's a messianic title. It was found in Daniel, and it just doesn't mean any man. It's talking about the Son of Man as the Messiah. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, hallelujah. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He's the Son of Man. He has authority. And as one commentator says so well, lordship by definition knows no boundaries. He's Lord of the Sabbath. See, when he said, you know, that the Sabbath, um, you know, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's not saying there should be chaos on Sabbath days. Jesus followed a Sabbath routine. He went to synagogue on Sabbath. He worshiped at the temple. He, he did those things. But they had perverted it. They had destroyed it. And, and really the bottom line is, let's make it our goal to please the Lord, whether we're at home, here on the, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the body, or away from it. Whether we're in heaven or here, let's just please the Lord. That's what we're to do. 
And whether it's a Sabbath day or any day, make it your goal to please the Lord. Now the next story is even more interesting in some ways because now Jesus honestly, very directly, confronts their view of Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, probably Capernaum, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. He had no liquid in his hand. I mean, most think he was paralyzed. And by the language, the way it's stated, it looks like it was an injury. He wasn't born that way, but he got injured at some point. Because of his injury now, his hand is paralyzed. Some of them, there's always them around, aren't there? Some of them were looking, they were inspecting, you know, they were looking like this. I mean, they were staring Jesus down for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. He's already established that he has the power to heal. They're not even concerned about that. They just don't want it done on a Sabbath. Do you remember in the first story we read in this account, he was doing work on the Sabbath and they didn't make any mention of it. But now it's become an issue. And Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. <laughs> he is not going to do this in a corner of the synagogue. Everybody's going to see this. Everybody's going to experience it. He's making a point. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Of course, they don't believe that. They don't really want to submit to that. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. But he has the guy stand right up. And then he challenges them. Not... That, there, here's the challenge. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save or to kill? Now, that's one of those questions it's really hard to answer, right? Like, have you stopped beating your wife? No matter how you answer it, you're in trouble. If you say, no, I haven't, well then, you know. <laughs> and if you say, yes, I have, then you admit you had. Anyway... They're silent. Obviously, you should do good on Sabbath. Obviously, you should save life. Obviously, if you have the opportunity to heal, you should do it. And so, Jesus does it. But before he does, look at what Mark tells us. He looked around at them in anger. We will discover that Mark gives us a lot of insight into the personal, emotional responses of Jesus Christ. More than Matthew, more than Luke, more than John, Peter was probably very sensitive to Jesus' emotions because it seems like Peter was a pretty emotional guy too. And so as he's telling these stories and Mark's recording it and then giving it to us, he's the, Peter's the eyewitness and he says Jesus was angry. And he was distressed, deeply distressed. It's a strong emotional word. He was grieved over what he was seeing. He was sorrowful. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with griefs. And he is really sad that this is happening because of their stubborn hearts, hard-heartedness. They refused to believe him. They didn't want to change. They didn't, they wouldn't, didn't want to learn. They were happy in their own little world. And that's why he does the miracle. Stretch out your hand. 
And as soon as the guy stretches out his hand, it is completely restored. There's no follow-up visits at the doctor. Okay? None needed. It is fully restored. If it had been injured, it's now fully restored. I wish doctors could do that today because, you know, they're just practicing. I know. Um, <laughs> sorry. Anyway... What a miracle. What an amazing miracle. And instead of rejoicing, instead of celebrating, instead of saying, yes, Jesus, you're right. You are the Lord of the Sabbath, and we should do what you say, and we should do good on the Sabbath. What do they do? It's so ironic. It's so shocking. And now we're only in the third chapter of this letter, and the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Early on in his ministry, he is growing in such popularity, they're so jealous, we're going to kill him. And the Pharisees, we've talked about them before, they're the separatists, they're the ones who are very legalistic in their views, and, but they're very respected by the community. The Herodians are those who are loyal to Herod. So they're more like a political group where the Pharisees are a religious group, and these two come together. They are not friends. They would not be friends, but they come together to plot to kill Jesus. Just like Herod and Pilate came together to crucify our Lord. Same thing's happening today. It's really interesting how people will oppose Jesus and come together, and they're people that really wouldn't normally agree, but they agree that they're opposed to Jesus. And that's what happened that day. Use your gospel freedom to serve others and obey the Holy Spirit's leading. That, that's what you should be doing. There are many, many lessons here for us. There's lessons on compassion, isn't there? There's lessons on being wary of a hard-heartedness. There's, there's lessons on uh, that we should do justice every day. But the summary that the Lord gave me is the gospel sets us free from man-made traditions. We, we should be aware of that. And I honestly, when I was looking at this, I sat at my desk at one point and I'm just sitting there like, oh man, I am guilty of this. I set traditions, I got ideas that should be this way, you should look like this, you know, whatever. And it's just not right. It's not drawing people closer to Jesus. And that's really what I want to see happen. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live or walk in him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let me, let me continue to read a little in that chapter of Colossians 2. Therefore do not let anyone, this is verse 16, judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Now, they will not admit to being unspiritual. They say they're very spiritual because they recognize there's a dimension beyond the physical. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elementary spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? You see, use your freedom to serve others. 
Don't become a legalist. Don't become set in your ways so much that you don't move. Here's another way that I think we're summing up. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself as yet to have taken hold of it, Paul's sense of perfection and maturity, full maturity. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view. We should be pressing on, we should be making steps, taking steps as the Lord leads us. And if on some point you think differently, this is important. That too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Early in my life, I didn't want to eat on Sundays. I didn't want to eat out on Sundays. Now, my wife grew up in a family where they went out every Sunday. And she just recently told me how much she didn't like that we didn't go out. So we ate a lot of tuna fish. Keep your conscience clear, okay? If God's convicted you of something, you follow it. But don't be looking down your nose at others who do it a little different. That's the point. Obey the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of your life. Follow him. If you get a smile from heaven, you got it. That's all you really need. Others may or may not understand. It really isn't that important. But we live in an age and a time that is so lost that sometimes we'll resort to trying to force people into rituals and traditions rather than introducing them to Christ. And it's Jesus who will transform their lives. He's much more concerned about the unseen things than the outward things. And that's what we need to do. Chuck Colson in 84 wrote in a book, we have an alarming degree to an alarming degree, become victims of our own mindless conformity, self-absorbed, indifferent, empty of heart. T.S. Eliot called it the hollow man. We have in, embraced nihilism. It predominates in this age. Nihilism, by definition, is the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. Dorothy Sayers, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, uh, wrote in one place, the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. That's nihilism. And people who have embraced a mentality like that need the Lord Jesus. They need the good news of the gospel. They need the new wine. Don't get caught up or distracted by traditions. <laughs> Introduce them to Jesus. Dear Lord, thank you for this incredible portion of scripture. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, yes, in a radical, revolutionary way in your day. And if you're seated here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, you have never really put your trust in him, you've just been trying to abide by the rituals of the rules, let me tell you, my friend, you will never live up to those rules. You need Jesus. Put your faith and trust personally in him, and he in exchange will give you the forgiveness of all your sins, the promise of heaven, and eternal life. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for coming to share with us the new wine. Help us, Lord, to find ways to drink it full and to live it out for the glory of God. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.